Well, communication is always uh, an important part about how, how we relate to other people. It's an, an important part of how we learn, and it's an important part of how we understand. It's important in a work setting. Of course, in some settings, more than others, communication is very important. If, uh, if you're in an operating room, communication is very important. If you're in an air control tower... But almost in every kind of business, it's important to be able to communicate well. It's important in school. It's, an important, it's important in marriage. It's important in parenting. And it's important that we learn how to communicate clearly and concisely. When people teach communication and listening skills, one of the strategies that they often teach is that we should always uh, repeat communication in different kinds of ways. Or another strategy when one person is giving instruction is for the other person to repeat those instructions back to ensure that those instructions have been correctly understood. What I heard you say is that I should turn left over at the Johansson's Red Barn or whatever it is. Is that what you said? Did I hear you correctly? And that sort of thing ensures clear communication. In parenting, communication is especially important because children can be preoccupied with many different things as we try to talk to them and give them instructions. And along with that, children have an uncanny knack of, uh, and I would add conveniently, being able to tune out instructions, especially any kind of instructions that might take them away from play. And so parents sometimes have to give, get a little bit creative to give instructions, to make sure that those instructions are heard and understood. Sometimes including consequences as part of those instructions can be a good motivator. For an example, brush your teeth, or you'll be using your toothbrush to clean the grout in the bathroom tiles for the next month, just to use a very hypothetical example. But communication with children and with adults, can get a little frustrating sometimes when we think we've communicated clearly and, we think, and, and we've even repeated it, sometimes over and over again, and yet that communication has not been heard or heeded for one reason or another. At worst, our frustration can turn into, into a, a more sinful response. But if we manage to maintain our composure, we might try to give the benefit of the doubt and try yet one more time. We might try to say the same thing again, only in a way that makes it, this time, very plain. One of the greatest lessons of parenthood is that it gives us a better understanding of God and his relationship to his children. Because when it comes to the relationship between us and God, now he becomes the father and parent and we become the children, children that often have a hard time understanding our Heavenly Father, or even more to the point, obeying our Heavenly Father. He has communicated to us, he has revealed his will to us, and yet we are sometimes, oftentimes, are slow to understand and slow to listen. And that's why one of the greatest attributes of our Heavenly Father is in how he is so patient with us. It's why I love the portrait of God that God gives of himself to Moses in Exodus 34, where it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed... Lord was going to say something about himself now. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transition of sin, uh, transgression of sin, and so on. The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is patient with us. He is long-suffering, as it says in some other translations. All of those attributes of the Lord in Exodus 34 are exemplified then in the life of Jesus, especially in his patience and his long-suffering and his being slow to anger. It's one of the qualities I've noticed as we've been making our way through the Gospel of John. One of those characteristics of Jesus, especially in these last few chapters, as Jesus deals with the people that he encounters and the opposition and the hostility that he encounters. Seems like he's saying the same kinds of things over and over again. Yet the people, especially the the religious leaders, don't seem to get it. He finds different ways of communicating the same truths, yet they still don't get it. And we find out that they're actually, these people that are hostile towards Jesus, are actually very obstinate. They only hear what they want to hear. In fact, they've gotten so obstinate that they've already, a couple of times, attempted to get rid of Jesus. Yet true to who he is, true to his character, Jesus keeps trying. He's slow to anger. He's long in patience. As we get to the end of John chapter 10, we see one more time this attribute of God, his, his patience in, in reaching out to them again. And so follow along in your Bibles as I read from John 10, and I re- want to read verses 22 to 42. So the, the last half of John chapter 10. And like Todd mentioned, that we do have Bibles that are close to you, and this one is on page 896, John 10. Verse 22. At that time, the, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And and Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, 
but he escaped from their hands. And he went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believe in him there. Our Father, we thank you for your most holy word. We thank you that it is always relevant. We thank you that it is packed full of theology and truth, but that there are implications for us. And we thank you for this particular word that you've given to us now when we pray that you would enliven and enlighten your word, illumine your word, empower your word now. We pray that you would do that work through your spirit. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, after this passage, we've been in the Gospel of John for a while. We're going to take a little bit of a break in the Gospel of John and resume a little bit later on, and and we'll go into something else here in the summer and the fall. But the end of chapter 10 is kind of a good break because it marks the end of this back and forth between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders that's been going on really since chapter 5, all the way through to this point. After this, starting in chapter 11, Jesus is going to really hone in on uh, on the cross and on his crucifixion and, and on his pathway to, to Jerusalem again. He's going to leave and come back and then ultimately to the cross and his impending death and resurrection. Jesus has done some astonishing and amazing miracles there in chapters 5 to 10, but even those have all been efforts by Jesus to show that he is truly the Son of God. That as chapter 1, verse 1 says, the verse, first verse in the Gospel of John, that the Word was with God and the Word was God. And that Jesus, in, as it says in chapter 1, verse 14, a little later on, was the Word made flesh. And it's that fact that the Jews kept pushing back against. They could not bring themselves to believe that. They, they would not bring themselves to believe that Jesus is God. In fact, that claim to them, was outright offensive and blasphemous. Yet Jesus is driving that point home over and over and over again. And the Jews are rejecting that point over and over again. And that's sort of a a really oversimplified summary of John 5 all the way through to John 10. And we see that here in this section too. Verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He's, He's making that claim again. But the very next verse, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They didn't like that truth. Verse 38, Jesus says, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him. That's just how this goes. That's the kind of response that Jesus elicits through his words and through his actions, through his works. But also scattered in these chapters are Responses of faith. There are those people who believe to one degree or another. And we see that there at the end of this section again. And and that's where you want to make sure that you end up. That the result of your encounter with Jesus is that you believe. That you have faith that he's the son of God who came and who died and who rose again for you. And like I said, what stands out about Jesus, even in this section, even after these Jews uh, kept attacking Jesus and and kept trying to get him to discredit himself, is that Jesus is gracious and that he keeps reaching out to them, 
keeps reaching out to them to come to him and to believe. That's what we want to see here. That's what makes Jesus worth following. That's what makes Jesus worthy of our worship. And so let's be looking for that as we walk through this last encounter. Let's, let's be looking for Jesus to reach out his hand as our Savior and as our Rescuer and as our Deliverer, our Protector, our Preserver. We get the setting for this right there in verses 22 and 23. A bit of time has passed here between verses 21 and, uh, verse 21 and verse 22, and we don't know how long of a time. It's probably maybe a couple of months. But Jesus is back here in Jerusalem, and he's back in the temple. He had, he had left uh, the temple back at the end of chapter 8, the last time that the Jews had picked up stones to throw at him. And then he went off into the Judean countryside for a while, but now he's back in Jerusalem. And we read that it's winter, and it's during the Feast of Dedication. So just a little historical side note here. The Feast of Dedication uh, is now known in, in Jewish circles as the, as the Feast of Lights, or as might be better known to you as Hanukkah. It's actually not an Old Testament prescribed feast. It, it marks a time in between the Old and the New Testament when someone named Antiochus Epiphanes tried to get rid of all of Jewish worship, a process called Hellenization. They tried to bring Greek culture in, and they tried to institute in, in the temple even Greek worship. And so this feast celebrated the overthrow of those efforts by some Jewish zealots led by a man named Judas Maccabeus, or, or Judas Maccabees. Anyways, that's just the history behind what John is using to tell us when this happened. There might be some symbolism in there as well, as Jesus fulfills the reason for this feast, that be, as he becomes the spiritual deliverer for the Jews and for all people. But as Jesus is there walking in the temple courts, that some Jews come, some Jewish religious leaders, and surround him again, and they really start right in on him again. And by the way, just need to know that even Jesus putting himself in this situation is a signal that Jesus is reaching out to them. It's not like Jesus just decided to go for a stroll in the temple and then he gets accosted. He knows that his being there was going to lead to this confrontation. He engineers for himself another opportunity to do what he came to do, to seek and to save the lost. Even though his interrogators are filled with anger and hatred and hostility. But that's no obstacle for Jesus, who, of course, is on a higher mission from his heavenly Father. The opposition is not an obstacle for Jesus. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for his grace to, to shine forth again. But the Jews surround Jesus and, and they demand an answer for him. They say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, if you're the Messiah, then tell us plainly. And that's what starts this whole encounter. It's basically them saying, come on Jesus, tell us clearly. Give, us, give it to us straight. And to see why they're asking it like this, we have to look back up at verse 6 in that last section that Pastor Andrew talked about last week. When, and Jesus is using the metaphor here of a sheep and the shepherd and, and how the sheep know the voice of the shepherd and they follow the voice of the shepherd and that Jesus calls himself the, the door and, and so on. And verse 6 said, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. But Jesus just kept on going with 
those figures of speech there at the beginning of chapter 10. And, and these figures are actually very understandable and very pointed. In fact, just up in verse 20, some of them thought Jesus was crazy, that Jesus was insane. But now the Jews say, tell us plainly. They want Jesus to say whether he's the Christ, the Messiah, mostly so they can arrest him right then and right there. They're trying to get him to implicate himself. To which Jesus says in verse 25, I told you, and you do not believe. He's saying all that stuff that I said about the door and the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, that's me telling you that I'm the Messiah. It's not that his communication here is unclear. It's that they don't have faith, that they don't believe. And not only has he been clear in his figures of speech, his actions and his miracles and signs have made it abundantly clear who Jesus is. 26, the, the, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe. There it is again. And so Jesus has been perfectly clear in both his words and his actions. Their problem is not lack of information. It's not that the, the, the communication was unclear. Their problem is an unwillingness to repent and to believe Jesus and to obey Jesus. They're like children with their parents. They're like us sometimes with the Word of God. It's not a communication deficiency. It's a listening problem and more to the fact an obeying problem. And then Jesus tells them why. And what he says next is going to result in verse 31. So just take a quick peek down there. The, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So what is it that Jesus says that makes them want to do that? Well, it's really verse 30 where he says, I and the Father are one. And to them who revered the God of the Old Testament, to them that's blasphemy. The end of verse 33 lays it out. You, being a man, make yourself God. To them, in spite of everything that Jesus has said, Jesus can only ever be a man. But I want us to double back and to look at how Jesus got to verse 30. He says some really important things there in verse 20, verses 27 to 29, things that really matter for us. We find out something about why people don't hear and why people don't understand and why people don't believe. And we find out something important about who the God, God the Father and God the Son is for us. First, why do some people never seem to understand? Actually, it starts there at the end of verse 26. Jesus says, you don't believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. So many people don't understand who Jesus is because they're not his sheep. And so from the vantage point of God and his sovereignty, they don't understand because they, they don't belong to him. So does that then excuse them? You know, they, they can't help themselves? So they're not responsible? No. They're also responsible. Because they willfully reject him. And, and how those two sometimes work together, God's sovereignty and, 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 and our responsibility, how those go together can be hard for us sometimes to understand. But the Bible teaches both. 
It even teaches both sometimes in the same sentence. Here's an example. Listen to Acts 2.23 where Peter is talking to, to actually maybe some of the same people that were part of this group that was talking to Jesus there in the temple. In John 10. He says, this is Acts 2.22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works again and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up, or or, or that's another way of saying crucified, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So here you have God's sovereignty. And then he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So God is sovereign. This is all happening by God's foreknowledge. And yet they're responsible. You killed them. And so those two truths that we have some, sometimes have trouble reconciling, God has no trouble with. They're not a problem for him. It's in our finite minds that we have problems putting those two together. But both are true. The Bible teaches both. You don't believe, Jesus says, because you're not part of my flock. And so they don't believe partly because they are not his sheep. They're, they're blind, but they also silence the truth. They suppress the truth to such a point that they are without excuse, as Romans 1 tells us. When they tell Jesus, or when they ask Jesus, tell us plainly, it's not like they're asking Jesus to clarify. They're trying to keep, uh, trap Jesus so that they can silence him and that, so they can do away with him. But then look at how Jesus continues. He says about my sheep, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That, my friends, is an amazing word of assurance for us. Do you ever have trouble with assurance of your salvation? Just look at this. Meditate on this verse. The fact that Jesus and the Father are are one is a great theological truth, one that we need to know and we need to understand. But this great truth has an implication for us. And the implication for us is that we are eternally saved. We are safe in the hands of God the Son, and we are doubly safe because we are also in the hands of God the Father who gave us into the hands of God the Son. We were sinners in the hands of an angry God, but we are now saints in the hands of a loving God because his wrath against us was laid upon his Son and it was nailed to the cross as an atoning sacrifice. And now, no one can snatch us out of the hands of the Son and out of the hands of the Father. This is a solid and and strong foundation and ground for your assurance. If you are truly saved, you are eternally saved. Leon Morris put it this way. He says, Our continuance in eternal life depends not on our feeble hold on Christ, but on his firm grip on us. Not on our feeble hold on Christ, but on his firm grip on us. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. I love that line because it's, it, it turns around, actually, the famous John 3.16. There it ended with, whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So not perish, everlasting life. 
But here in John 10, it's, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. It's just a reversal. It's like Jesus saying, all right, if you don't understand it this way, then let me, let me give it to you the other way. It still works. Whichever way you slice it, it's true. It's gloriously true. Never perish, never snatched away, eternal life. All of that is true for whoever believes. God repeats that truth there, but God also repeats the invitation. Even to these belligerent, Jewish, refuse-to-believe, murderous religious leaders. They want to kill him for blasphemy in verses 31 to 33, but Jesus, in almost a, a humorously calm way, diverts and stalls them, starting in verses 34 to 36, by citing just a very obscure Old Testament reference, just to make the point that he has every right to be called the Son of God. But look at verse 37 and 38. So we just won't go into those verses a whole lot other than to give you that, that summary there. There's, there's, a, there's an effort to kill them and then there's Jesus citing this. I think it's really just a diversionary tactic for Jesus because it's not his time to be killed yet. That's still coming. But then look at verse 37. Look again at verses 37 and 38 right at the end of that section there. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. And so you have them here. They're, they're ready to, to stone him, but, but Jesus, and yet another amazing example of grace, basically reaches out his hands, the same hands in which his sheep are held in, in, in safety, and invites them in. He says, if you don't believe me, believe my works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. This is the mercy of Jesus. This is the mercy of God our Savior. They might not see clearly, even though they've been nothing but obstinate and willful in their unbelief. Yet Jesus says, if you don't want to believe my words, at least believe on the basis of what I've done. On my miracles and so forth. All those things that I've done. Feeding the 5,000. You know, healing the blind man. Those things that he did in chapter 6 and 7, 8 and 9. Why? So that you may know and that you may understand who I am. That I am the Son of God. That I am the one who has come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus offers himself, even to these people, one last time. Sadly, they also reject his offer one last time in the very next verse. It says they sought to arrest him. That was their response to this gracious offer. My friend, if you would not consider yourself a Christian, or maybe you're here today, you're not sure who Jesus is, or maybe you've been indifferent for a long time, or maybe you've even rejected Jesus' claims, then just hear this invitation. Don't make the same fatal error that these non-believing Jews who rejected Jesus' plain words and picked up stones and sought to arrest him and silence him. Don't make that same mistake. Hear Jesus. Be like those people across the Jordan, those people over there, that place where John baptized that he talks about next. Ones that you read about there in verses 40 to 42. They, they didn't need a sign from John. They came to believe that everything that John said about Jesus was true. And it says many believed in him there. That can be your experience too. 
Jesus invites you to come to him in faith and belief. Hear his voice and believe. Don't be like those religious leaders who thought they knew everything that there was to know about God and knew how to please him by their law-keeping is what they thought. Turn away from any self-reliance. Turn away from any pride. The one quality that marked John the Baptist was the fact that he was the exact opposite of that. John the Baptist was humble. John the Baptist always pointed to Jesus as the one who was the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sins of the world. Come to this Jesus. Come to him in repentance and faith. Chapter 10 ends with, Many believed in him there. Will you believe in him here, right now, today? Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful for the theological reality and the practical reality that you are one with the Son. And it's because of that oneness that we can be secure in the knowledge that you have saved us and that you will keep us. We are safe in your hands. I pray, Father, though, that 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 security and that assurance um, would not make us lazy, would not make us sluggish in our faith, but that, that it would help us to keep following Jesus and to keep growing in our knowledge and in our understanding of him. You say here that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And so I ask that you would increase our desire to follow you, we pray. And if there are any here today that don't know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to the Father but through him, Lord, I pray that they would hear this invitation to know and to understand and to believe. Help these dear ones to see their sin and to turn away from their sin and to cast all their reliance on your Son and in what he did on the cross as a substitute for their sin. And now, Father, as we eat together and as we play together, as we fellowship together, Lord, we pray that this time would be used to deepen our relationships with each other and also to deepen our desire to serve one another. Thank you for graciously providing this food that has been prepared. And Lord, we ask your blessing on it. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.